Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. We'll take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 3, if you would. We have arrived today at the seventh and final church that the risen, glorified Christ addresses through a personal letter that he had the Apostle John to write and then to be sent to them. And before we get into this final letter, I want to just kind of go back and quickly review the six that we've already unpacked. The first letter went to the church in Ephesus. They had lost their first love. The Lord called them to repent lest he come and remove them from active ministry in his name. The church in Smyrna was the second letter. They were living under great persecution. Jesus encourages them to their faithfulness, continue to be faithful even unto death for which the crown of life would be given. Letter number three was to the church in Pergamum. They were compromising scriptural doctrine to which Jesus called them to repent and return to the true teaching of scripture lest he come and make war against them. Letter number four went to the church in Thyatira. They were tolerating a self-appointed false prophetess who had led many in the church and in the community into immorality and idolatry. As we studied that letter, there was no hope left for her. Her judgment was coming. But for those who had followed her, there was hope. The call was to repent and walk away from that false teaching. And if you repent, well, then everything's going to be good. And there were those in the church who had not followed her, and so uh, Jesus encourages them to hold fast uh, what they had. Letter number five went to the church in Sardis. They had a reputation of being alive for Christ, but he judged them as dead. He called on them to wake up, to strengthen what remained, and they had just a little remaining that was alive. He called on them to remember what they had received and what they had heard and to keep it. Ultimately, what he is calling on them to do there, like all the others, is to repent. Letter number six went to the church in Philadelphia. This is a church who received no criticism whatsoever, only praise. Jesus said of them that they had little power, and yet despite that, they were faithful to the word, they were faithful to Jesus. And because of that, he made several promises to them, not the least of which was deliverance from the coming hour of trial that would fall upon those who dwell on the earth. And so today, we find ourselves with the church in Laodicea. Originally, when I uh, titled this sermon, I titled it to be uh, the church in Laodicea, the apostate church. (laughs) But as I was kind of writing this message and, and reviewing a lot of other information, I came to the conclusion that I don't believe that they were fully apostate yet. Uh, They were certainly deluded, and that's what I changed the title to, the deluded church, and they were definitely on their way to uh, being apostate, uh, but there is still hope as we see there in the scripture as we read it. So as we've done each with each church and each letter, let's take just a moment to uh, gain a little context uh, of uh, where they lived and some of the things that, that had to do with their existence I'm going to start with our own context on Iowa, Illinois state line. There are uh, four cities 
that are kind of grouped together. What do we call them? Quad cities, that's right. Well, Laodicea was in a triad. They were there with the cities of Colossae and Hierapolis, and they were located about 100 miles east of Ephesus, established by Antiochus II in about an eight-year period there between 261 and 253 B.C., its name was derived from his wife and queen, uh, Leo, um, how did I say that? Um, Laodicea, I think is the way it's pronounced. Uh, there's, that's, the, that's the guy who founded it. It's a coin with his image on it. You see this image of the queen with a sword, and you see some folks laying around with blood everywhere. Well, it is said that she was quite um, a ruthless woman, and uh, she had no trouble having her rivals put to death. And that's an actual portrait that was drawn about that. So they were annexed by Rome in 133 B.C., and the city became the center for banking, for textiles. Uh, Mainly the textiles were a glossy black woolen cloth that they made there. They also were known as a center for medicine. Uh, The temple at Minkaru had a medical school where it is said that an ISAV had been developed to treat some of the common conditions of the day relating to the eye, and then that salve was exported throughout the Greco-Roman world. To say that Laodicea was rich would be an understatement. It was a very wealthy community. One of the examples of its wealth comes with the idea or the story that following an earthquake that literally devastated the city in 60 A.D., they, from their own coffers, financed the rebuilding of the city, declining any financial aid from Rome whatsoever. They were able to do that because they were a very, very rich city. Finally, its sister cities, Colossae and Hierapolis, were both known for their water. Colossae was known for its pure cold water, and Hierapolis was known for its hot springs. I'll come back to that in a few minutes. But with that context in view, let's read Jesus' letter to Laodicea, beginning with verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, I pray now as we uh, begin to unpack this letter that your Spirit would help me (laughs) to communicate well and help us all to be able to receive what you brought us here to get today. Lord, may your Spirit bring this letter alive to us and help us each one to be touched by it in some way and to take a step toward either salvation or the continued conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 3, verse 14 Uh, Verse 14 gives us the identity of the author. Of course, we already know who the author is. It is Jesus. Jesus is the one who is dictating these letters to the Apostle John. So the question is at verse 14, how does Jesus introduce himself to this church? He had introduced himself to each church in a little bit different way. And what we find here in verse 14 is that Jesus uses three descriptors of himself as his introduction. The first one is this. He refers to himself as the Amen. The Amen. Now that is a very strange word to use to introduce yourself uh, using the word that we typically use at the end of our prayers. uh, The Amen. But when you discover the meaning of that, then it's not so strange at all. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, we find the phrase God of truth found in that passage twice. The Hebrew word behind truth looks like that there on the screen. You see truth equals, and there is the Hebrew equivalent of what that word truth is translated from. Uh, Then uh, you see in the second line that transliterated into English letters. And what do you see? Say it for me. Amen. Amen. And the, 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 the meaning of that word from the Hebrew is trustworthy, true, faithful. That certainly describes our Lord Jesus, doesn't it? So these attributes he claims for himself. And he reinforces it when he offers the second descriptor of identification. Secondly, he identified himself as the faithful and true witness. Here Jesus is speaking about his reliability as a witness. And the significance of this is that he is going to give witness of what he knows is true about the Laodiceans. And unlike the many unfaithful, untrue witnesses that often take the stand in our courts of law, his testimony is unimpeachable. And what he has to say about his church in Laodicea is spot on. And so he is the faithful and true witness. And what he says about them, what he says about us, we need to take 100% because he is accurate, he is faithful, he is true And he is the witness of who and what we are, just as he was of the Laodicean church. Number three, he introduces himself as the beginning of the creation of God. The beginning of the creation of God. Now, some have taken this this, uh, phrase to mean that Jesus is the first 
of God's creation. That when God began to create, he created the Lord Jesus and, and he then is the first created thing or being. And of course, if that were true, then that would mean that Jesus is not divine. He is not God if that is true. But we know from the scripture that is not true. What we have here then is a a problem with our common understanding of an English word. When we see that word beginning, it has a certain connotation to us. And if that's as far as we go with it, it becomes a little bit confusing. So going back again to uh, the text, the original text, the Greek word behind the word beginning, if you'll change that slide, looks like that. You see it there on the screen, beginning equals... And when you transliterate that Greek word with English letters, you see what comes out there. And what that means is first cause, the source, the origin. First cause, the source, the origin. And that brings us to truth point number one today. Far from being the first act of God's creation... Jesus is the source from which creation came to be. That's powerful. He's not the first created. He is the one who created. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He, that is Jesus, is the image, the icon, the the exact physical representation of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, meaning existing before. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, Jesus introduces himself to this church as the amen, as the faithful and true witness, as the source of all creation. And what that means basically is this, is that Jesus then is the first and final word on all that is or that transpires in creation. And the significance of that to Laodicea is that his word about them cannot be contradicted. His assessment of them is true. As we move into verses 15 through 17, we discover that just as there was no criticism for the church in Philadelphia, there is no commendation for the church in Laodicea. Jesus says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Over the years, I've heard this passage preached on in Sunday, well, taught in Sunday school, preached on in churches, Bible college, all kinds of places I've I've, I've heard this passage preached on. And I was taught that the word cold in this context was a symbol for being unsaved or being backslidden. Okay, that's the way I always kind of remember remember 
hearing it talked about. And then the word hot in this context was a symbol for being on fire for God. So we have the the hot ones who are on fire for God and the cold ones who at best are backslidden at worst or not even born again, which then leaves the lukewarm ones as being apathetic Christians. I've come to a little bit different view on this, and I want to share that with you. I want to remind you that context, when we're reading Scripture, is king. We cannot ignore the context. And what did we learn about the context of Laodicea? Well, we learned that the city sat between Colossae with its cold, pure water and Hierapolis with its hot springs. Both of these were very well known to all of the people of the region and especially those who are uh, in Laodicea. Now, what do we know, church, about cold, pure cold water? Tell me, what do we know about that? It's refreshing. We want it. It's good. It's a positive thing, right? And what do we know about hot springs? They are awesome to soak in right? On a cold day like today, we'd love to find a hot spring somewhere and just slither in there and just kind of enjoy that warm lusciousness of the water as it just kind of envelops us, right? And the steam rises up, right? Both of those, both pure cold water and hot springs water, both of those are desirable. Both of those are useful, but Tepid water. Tepid water is neither refreshing to drink nor is it soothing to relax in. I got to tell this story. I didn't ask permission first, so I may be in a lot of trouble. Somebody, if you have an extra bedroom, I might need it tonight. (laughs) But I remember long ago when we were first married and living in Mississippi... Our hot water tank was not all that great, and Connie would want to get into a hot bath. And you know what would happen. She'd run out of hot water, and then the water's just kind of tepid. Who wants to set in a tepid pool of water? Anybody? No. And you know what she would ask me to do? She would ask me to go get pans out of the thing and fill them full of water and heat them to boiling on the uh, stove and then carry them to the bathroom and pour them in so that she could have a hot bath. (laughs) That worked once or twice and after that we were always at a tussle about that issue. But anyway, the bottom line, the point there is this, is that in this context, right, This idea of being lukewarm. What Jesus is saying to them is that in that context, they are good for nothing. The cold, refreshing water, that's good. A great big old drink of that's awesome. And those hot springs, that's relaxing and awesome. But tepid, lukewarm, which is what you are, Laodicea. You're good for nothing. The Laodiceans, they would understand this imagery because their water supply came from the south through aqueducts. I've got a picture of that, I think, of those aqueducts. If we'll put that up there, please. And by the time that that would, is it not there? 
Okay, it's up there. Oh, there it is. Yeah, it's kind of nasty looking, isn't it? By the time that water would get to Laodicea, it was not cold, it was tepid, and at times it was undesirable to drink. Something that perhaps if you were to catch it on the wrong day and you took a big old gulp, you might just want to spew it out of your mouth. And so Jesus says, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold. If they were cold, he would have kept it. If they were hot, that's awesome too. But because that you're neither of those and you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Again, Jesus is saying that in your present condition, you are good for nothing. Now, I would be wrong, I think, if I didn't cause us or try to cause us to ask the question, where are we at today? Where are we at as individuals? Where are we at as a church? I hope that we're refreshing. I hope that we're hot in the sense that it's, it's, it's healing and helpful to others. But where are we at individually? Would the Lord Jesus, whose testimony is faithful and true, would he say, you, my friend, where you are right now, you are good for nothing? Now, being lukewarm was not their only problem. Jesus says in verse 17, For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, the Laodicean church was having spiritual eye problems. Perhaps we should say it, they were having spiritual perception problems. They saw themselves in a very positive light, but the faithful and true witness saw them in a very negative light. As we've already stated, the Laodicean community was wealthy. And according to Jesus, the church shared in a measure of that wealth as well. Now, wealth is amoral, meaning that, you know, it's neither good nor bad, right? I mean, there are some who are wealthy and they use their wealth for great good. And there are those who are wealthy who use their wealth for great bad. But it doesn't have to be bad. Wealth can be a very good thing. And God has given wealth to many people. And they have used that wealth for good stuff. But wealth does, though, have a tendency across the board to lead people into an attitude of self-reliability, of self-sufficiency. And I believe that is certainly the case here. The Laodicean church saw itself as prospering. They saw themselves as rich, which... Again, being rich is not a bad thing. But their wealth had led them into a state of smug self-sufficiency, causing them to see themselves as needing nothing. Do you know how to tell if you are in that same state of basically feeling like you need nothing? Do you know how to tell 
when you're in that state, I'll tell you, it's when your prayer life is almost non-existent. Because when we find ourselves in need, what do we do, Christian? We pray. We get a bad diagnosis of ourselves or a friend or a family member. We pray. We get a reversal in our finances. We pray. Bad things happen around us. We pray. But when there's plenty of money in the bank account and there's nothing much else going on around us that is very negative, we have the tendency, it doesn't always happen, but we have the tendency to kind of fall back and not pray too terribly much. Why? Because we're self-sufficient. We're self-reliant. We've got this covered. But the amen, he said, no, no, you're wretched and you are pitiable and you are poor and you are blind. You can't even see the condition you're in. And like that king, I can't remember his name, uh, who uh, wound up walking naked down the street because nobody made him actual clothes, but everybody convinced him he had them on. You're naked. You think you're finally attired, but you're not. What a shock. What a shock to see yourself as completely and totally positive, only to hear God say to you that you are totally negative. The Laodiceans were certainly self-deluded. Where did that delusion come from? Well, I'm going to suggest that it probably grew from a sense of unholy pride that had crept in and taken root in their hearts. Truth point number two. According to Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, pride is what polluted Lucifer causing his fall from the most exalted angel to the most cursed among angels. According to Proverbs 16, 11, pride, which gives birth to a haughty spirit, leads its victims to their ruin as well. Pride. Pride. It's so easy to find pride creeping in and we begin to think proudly of ourselves and proudly of the things around us. Over my 63 years of living, 30 years in ministry, I have watched pride destroy so many good people. So many good ministries have gone down the tubes, not because of immorality, not because of idolatry, not even because they have gone wrong in their doctrine because they became proud of who they were and what they thought of themselves. And a people, a church, who finds themselves there, who will not repent, eventually the Lord will say, I'm done. We've got to start something new. So when this happens, when this kind of pride comes creeping in and this misconception of who we actually are is taking hold, is there anything that can be done? Or is it just hopeless? 
and all is lost. Well, no, it's not hopeless and all is not lost. Verses 18 and 19. We find Jesus giving them this prescription that they needed to make a turnaround. There needed to be a turning. We find in this passage that to deal with their spiritual poverty, Jesus invited them to purchase gold refined by fire so that they may be rich. What is this, what is this spiritual gold that Jesus is talking about? Well, Peter speaks of faith, true faith, as being more precious than gold. And, and the Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, uh, talks about the, the necessity to be rich in good works, of, of being generous, of being ready to share with others, thus then storing up treasure for yourselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Truth point number three. According to James 2, 14 through 26, true faith generates good works. Good works that are commensurate with that faith, and those good works then become a sign that true faith exists in one's heart. I want to make sure it's clear, right? Good works have never saved a single soul. You cannot work your way into God's good favor. It is absolutely impossible. But let us also understand that if the grace of Jesus Christ has come into your heart and soul and saved you and made you a child of God and you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, then works are going to come out of that life. And those good works will be a sign that that life actually exists in you. There is no such thing as being a follower of Jesus and having no good works in your life. Just, it's just not real. Because the Holy Spirit comes in, he begins to make a transformation, and as our lives are transforming, we begin to find ourselves joining Jesus in his mission, and those good works begin to happen. Not as the means of our salvation, but as a sign that true salvation has actually come into a life. To deal with their spiritual nakedness, Jesus invites them to buy white garments. Basically, these white garments are a symbol for the righteous deeds that are empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit and again become the evidence of true saving faith. To combat their spiritual blindness, Jesus invites them to receive from him salve to anoint their eyes so that they may see. The Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates our spiritual eyes so that we may gain understanding of the light which is God's word. Ultimately, in all three of those, what Jesus is inviting them to do is to repent. Have we not heard that over and over again in these letters? Again and again and again. The prescription for getting off track is to turn. To turn. To turn from self-sufficiency. In their case, to turn from the self-sufficiency of their wealth. To turn from 
their pride perhaps in their lavish physical garments and, 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 and the, the famed eye salve that they created, these physical things that they took much pride in, turned from that to receive from the Lord what no amount of money, no amount of trade can ever give, which is true spiritual blessing. And what about motive? What was Jesus' motive to say things like this to a church that you know would be judged by many as being harsh, as being unloving? What was his motive? Verse 19 tells us his his motive was love. He said these harsh things. These things that some would say is unloving. He said them because of love. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I do that because I love you. Because I don't want you to continue to go down a street that is going to lead you into destruction. And I love you enough to say, this isn't right. This is wrong. You've got to turn. I mean, that's something I think in our churches today that is beginning to wane in big, big ways. Pastors, Bible teachers, whomever, are unwilling to say, this isn't right. You've got to turn. You've got to change. something that many Christians aren't willing to do for each other, to hold one another accountable. But holding accountable uh, an individual who's in sin and telling the truth about what's going on, especially when it's coming from a loving heart, is a good thing. It may save you from the wreck and ruin of the path that you're on. Truth point number four. The identification and conviction of sin coupled with the call to repent is not something that we create and then ex- create within ourselves and then express. No, this is God's gift. Conviction of sin is God's gift. Repentance is God's gift to those who are off track and who need to get back on track with him. And the good news of the gospel is this. If you will turn, you can be restored. You can be restored. You can be reconciled. You can come back to a place of favor, a place where God can still use you. But you got you got to turn. you got to acknowledge what is true, and you got to turn. So is it any wonder, then, that Jesus tells the Laodiceans to come to him, to obtain from him what they lack? They were lacking desperately faith and righteousness and spiritual sight, and he invites them to come to him because he is the sole source. That then, church, is the prescription for anyone who desires to leave behind the condemnation of sin, whether it is for salvation or for sanctification. Verse 20, we find 
that this self-deluded, self-focused, self-sufficient church received words of encouragement from their Lord. And here are his words. I stand at the door and knock. If you put that picture up for me, perhaps you have seen that picture. How many of you have seen that picture before today? Ah, yes. It's a very popular picture. It's a picture that is commonly associated with Jesus knocking at the heart's door of a lost sinner, asking for them to open the door of their heart so that he may come in and save their soul. I've heard many evangelists and pastors use that verse in that kind of a context. But I have to tell you the truth. While there may be an application that can be made with that, that's not, that's not why that scripture's there. When Jesus made this statement, it had nothing to do with open your sinning heart's door so that I may come in and bring you to faith. He's not talking to the sinful world there. He is talking to his church. He is talking to his church. Truth point number five. It is not a lost person's heart's door Jesus is knocking on in verse 20. He may do that, but that's not the context here, but rather it is uh, the door of his own church. Their sin had separated them from his fellowship. It had not taken away their salvation, but it had damaged their fellowship. If they would repent, meaning if they would open that door and acknowledge the reality of what Jesus is saying and turn as he is inviting them to do, then he would come in and he would renew fellowship. And with that, then all would be well. If not, I believe the implication would be that judgment is on the way. The encouragement here, listen to me carefully, church, the encouragement here is found in the fact that despite their deluded condition, despite the fact that they were wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked, Jesus is loving. Jesus is patient. Jesus is desiring reconciliation with them rather than judgment, which is evidenced by the remainder of the statement. Notice, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, i.e. repents, then I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Truth point number six. Repentance precedes reconciliation. And always, I wish I had put that on your note guide in capital letters, always brings renewal of fellowship with Christ for those who humble themselves and turn. The Lord desires that sinners repent, be they sinners who have never received saving grace or those who have that have gotten off track. That is his desire. But repentance has to come before reconciliation and the renewal 
that reconciliation brings. Well, moving on to verse 21 and the reward. Jesus says, the one who conquers, the one who conquers, okay, it's a very specific person, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. With each, I went back and looked at it to make sure I was right. Each of the seven letters, Jesus made reference to the one who conquers. Every single one of them. And with each one of those references to the word conquer, what he is talking about there are those who persevere in their faith toward him. John, the very one who wrote this down for Jesus, is also the one who wrote the following that gives us that definition and helps us to understand what Jesus means by conquering. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, John writes, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That word overcomes, conquer, conquers the world. Saving grace is what conquers, not my self-effort or my good works. He goes on to say, and this is the victory that has overcome or conquered the world. What? Our faith. Faith is the means by which saving grace comes and then becomes the means by which we can conquer. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Conquering is not about, as Adam said a while ago, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and finding a way in our own strength to become perfect. That's not conquering. Conquering is when we hide ourselves completely and utterly in the person and grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who hide themselves in Him and remain in faith to Him, despite their flaws, Despite their inconsistencies, despite their failures, those are the ones who conquer. Conquering is not done in our own strength, but through believing faith that Jesus is the Son of God. Take note of the reward itself that comes to those who conquer. I will grant him to set with me on my throne and as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The word throne there is symbolic for authority. And sitting on a throne is symbolic of possessing authority. And the Lord's promise here is that his intent is to see his own join him in governing over his kingdom. Specifically, I believe the context is his millennial kingdom. Let me read for you Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. John said, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those, whom, uh, to, uh, were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I believe that's the saints from this age. And I saw the souls of of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. I believe that's tribulation saints. And those who had not worshipped the beast, that's 
pretty big clue right there. Or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But notice again, they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. That's the promise. That's the reward for those who conquer. Revelation 3.22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, Christian, I'm going to wrap this up, and I want to ask you, which church represents your life best today? Is it the church of Philadelphia? The church for whom there was no condemnation, there was no criticism? Is that the church that best represents you today? Or is it the church in Laodicea for whom there was no commendation from Christ? That question is one I cannot answer for you and you cannot answer for me. That is a question that we must take God's word and his spirit and wrestle with him about to seek where am I at this moment. But as you do that, and I invite you to do that, Christian, I want you to keep these seven points in mind. They'll be on the screen. Point number one, it is easy to become deluded thinking that you are on track when you are not. Does anybody agree with that? Yes. Number two, our Lord always knows where we stand. When he reveals the negative, it is not to shame, but to call our attention to the dangerous position we've taken. His motive in doing that is love. Number three, sin breaks our fellowship, not our salvation, but our fellowship with Christ, putting him outside the door of our heart, blocking our fellowship with him. Number four, if outside of a Christian's uh, door, so to speak, he'll be knocking because he's seeking reconciliation through our repentance. Number five, if we do, he will forgive and he will restore. As it comes to the issue of conquering, it is a matter of faith in and obedience to Christ. And finally, number seven, our destiny is to rule and reign with him in his kingdom. So as disciples of Christ, we are called to a life of repentance so that we can grow in the image of Christ, so that we can maintain close fellowship with him, so that we can enjoy his loving favor in our life. Christian, are you living that life now? Are you growing in the image of Jesus? Are you maintaining close fellowship with him? Are you enjoying his favor on your life? If not, do you need help? Do you need someone to come alongside to disciple you and help you to get back to that place? Are you willing, if that's where you are, are you willing to ask for help? To those who have yet to believe, both in this room and online today, I just want to remind you that Jesus gave his life on the cross for you to pay the debt of sin. He rose from the dead to bring new eternal life 
to those who will turn from sin and self and embrace him as their Savior and Lord. Today is the day to do that if that's where you find yourself. Perhaps you have questions about what it means to turn to Christ in faith. Or you have questions about the gospel itself. Will you reach out? Will you let me know that you have questions? My contact information is there on the screen. If you'll text me, if you'll call me, if you'll send an email, I will respond to you. And we can then get together, open God's word, and find his answers there. Father, I thank you for the opportunity today to talk about this church in Laodicea, a church that I know you loved and cared about, just like you care for this church. Lord, in any day of the week, we find ourselves sometimes off track, on track, but may we find ourselves growing more and more to walk consistently in line with you. And Lord, if we're out of line, help us to see that. Help us not to be deluded by false thoughts of what we think we are. Help us to see what we really are, that we may come before you and, 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 and be cleansed of that, to become the man, the woman that you want us to be. Lord, help the believers to deal with that individually with you today. For those who do not know Christ yet as their Savior and Lord, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict them, open their eyes, draw them to Christ. And I pray that they will turn and put their faith and trust in him. Lord, speak to the hearts of those who need help. Give them the courage, I pray, to reach out. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.